Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast where we talk to people who matter about things that matter in the world of financial services. My name is Rebecca Tomes and I'm the junior editor at IFA Magazine and joining me on the podcast today is my co-host and IFA Magazine editor Sue Whitbread. Well hello everybody and I'm pleased to welcome today's guest on the IFA Talk podcast and it's Reddington's Managing Director of Wealth Nick Blake. Yay! <laughs> Hi Sue, hi Rebecca, thanks for having me on. Hi Nick, uh, I'm guessing to, that Nick you'll be no stranger to uh, financial advisors and planners listening in today. Um, a bit like me, you've been working in financial services for many decades, how did we describe it earlier? Seasoned profession. <laughs> Seasoned I think so yeah that's all right. I, li- I like that word <laughs> and ca- with that comes huge experience as well as knowledge that uh, the Nick has always been well known for sharing. Uh, Nick, I think I first met you many years ago when you were at Standard Life and then Vanguard, and now I know you've been at Reddington for a few years, so it's great to have you on the pod. Thank you, nice to be here. So before we, sorry, (laughs) so before we get down to talking more broadly about the advice profession, let's start with you. So for any listeners who don't know you, could you tell us a bit more about your background, your role in Reddington, and it would be good to hear what you're focusing on right now as well. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rebecca. Well, well, as Sue said, yeah, I've been been around a few years. So um, I, I started out when I was a young lad. Uh, my first ever job actually was at the Halifax Building Society when I left. I, le- I left college with a couple of O levels and started at the uh, the Halifax Building Society back in the day, uh, and then was there for four years. I joined Standard Life when uh, when it was a good old life insurance company that, uh, that many years ago, back in 1987, uh, and I was there for 22 years. Had a, a fabulous uh, time at uh, Standard Life, great company. Uh, when it was a life company and latterly you know, helping the uh, things like the rap proposition sort of come come to market uh, and then in 2009 Vanguard knocked on my door and said would I like to help them get started in the in the UK another fabulous organization uh, uh, and I was with Vanguard for 10 years helping them go uh, from from nothing in the UK up to uh, to a, a part of what they are today um, which, which was terrific fun. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, uh, through, uh, through an institutional connection, actually, I, I was introduced to uh, Reddington and one thing led to another. And, uh, and here I am. I've been here for a couple of years now helping Reddington expand their presence in the, in the wealth market. Like me, Nick, I know that your financial services career is into its fourth decade. We started as young. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but by goodness, there's been such a lot of change over that time, hasn't there? Um, I'd be, I, I wonder, what do you think then has been the most enduring, maybe impactful of all the changes that you've seen over the years? I think for me, it probably was the RDR 10 years ago, but I'd be keen to, to hear what you think. I, I I think you're probably right. So, and, and funnily enough, you should mention the the sort of IFP earlier. Um, I remember some of those very sort of early early meetings there with um, with those that were sort of spearheading the sort of change to the advice market. And, and I, I, yeah. I think I'd probably agree. I think RDR has probably been the most enduring uh, change that I've seen in in my mm-hmm. career. I mean, I guess if I if I think if I think back. 
um, to the to the products that I was sort of you know help, helping take to market back in 1987. It was savings plans and pensions bonds, um, and, wasn't it? and, and, and bonds. bonds and <laughs> you're, you're right. It was, it was you're right. It was either endowments or MIPS or bonds or or, or pent two two sixes back in the day, wasn't it? Uh, We've probably and, and lost guess, a lot you know, of listeners going what what's a MIPS? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, I looked at. <laughs> I, I look today and think, is that is that change massively? I mean, it's still savings plans and pension. We've got ISAs and things today, haven't we? But you know, yeah. we've moved through PEPs and things. But but essentially, I think the product set is probably broadly similar. But I think that I think the thing that has changed is you know click i think i think the investment proposition has evolved it was again if i remember back to my early career it was with profits with profits with profits and then yeah, we, yeah. We, we saw the emergence of unit linked we saw the, yeah, emergence then the, of the unit, distribution unit, bonds were like whoa yeah, indeed, yeah, and unit unit trusts came along, didn't they? And and then I, I guess we saw the emergence of sort of multi-manager, multi-asset thing, and, and then I, I guess bringing us right up to date, more of the sort of discretionary fund management sort yeah. of type type thing. So so I I, th I think the the investment um, proposition is involved, not not least the arrival of indexing, which you know hopefully played a part in in Vanguard there is a sort of a big part. But but no, I, I, I guess if, if I guess if I look at the most enduring thing, it's been the really the professionalization of advice, if I can. So, say that I, I think I mean if I again if I think back to my early career it really was about product selling whereas now and, and the IFP clearly led the charge on this I think if, if I look at the uh, yeah, advice is at the center of most advisors proposition now that that, that, that sounds a bit an, an obvious thing to say but I think for me what's changed is uh, you know advisors are now fundamentally anchoring their proposition around getting their client from a to b over their lifetime mm -hmm. rather than an implicit i'll beat the market for you type offer which is i i think was what, what was implicit in most advisors mm -hmm. or, or many advisors sort of offering 20 30 years ago so i i think i think rdr and the independence and the professionalizing of advice that i would say has probably been the most enduring change i've seen over over my career mm. And not everyone went graciously, did they? A few were kicking and screaming 10, 12 years ago about qualifications and professionalisation and upping standards. But I think the, the, the litmus paper test is how it's borne out and, and it, it's been a I, I think that's right, and and it was and it was my pleasure over the year to to visit lots of other countries and you know talk on behalf of RDR and you know and still around the world there are lots of naysayers who say it can't work. So several times I've been in Canada talking about this or Europe and and sadly in certain places around the world we still don't see them taking that final leap and and really separating out incentives from advice and product sales as, as we have done in the UK. And I think I think the evidence will show here that the you know, the industry's robust, you know, the, the advice gap didn't emerge that people thought might emerge. And it would, it would be great to see other places around the world really take that final step to a place that RDR took, I think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So moving on a bit then, we all know we're living in really uncertain times at the moment, obviously on a macroeconomic level, of course, but perhaps also in the industry as well. So what do you find are the key issues keeping your clients up at night? Um, it's, it's, it's a good, good question. I mean, certainly from an investing point of view, yeah, yes, it is turbulent times. But as I, th I think in line with that advice change, I, I see more and more 
uh, great advisors have got their clients in a position where that they're focused on long-term perspectives, they're tuning out the noise, um, they've built them a great all-weather portfolio. So actually, I, I think clients are, are better trained today than they've ever been in terms of not reacting to to markets. Now, so, sometimes there are short-term dislocations, which you know certain types of clients might be able to take advantage of. But 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 in the main, I would say many clients are now very well served with you know with with with, with great strategic plans, great execution, all-weather portfolios. So they're, they're so, so I think in, in many ways, the sort of the investment markets don't cause the, the stress that, that perhaps they may have done in, in times gone by. Um, I, get, I guess other things on their mind. I, I always think back when I was a young lad at Standard Life, I was, I was a life inspector, as they called them in those days. <laughs> I, 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 always, I, I always remember calling on one equally seasoned uh, uh, chap at that time. And, and, and I said, you know, how, how best can I help your business? Because we all thought we were very clever back in those days. Um, and he said, there's only three things you've got to do for me, Sonny. He said, um, he said, help me make money, help me look good in front of my client and keep me safe. Uh, which, I thought, which I thought was a great summary, actually, which I've, I've sort of carried with me, actually, over the years. So I think of, often as we think about what, what oh, can we do really, to support advisors, yeah. yeah. So, so if, if, yeah. I, if I think about that today, I, I think the conversations are the same. I think they're about how do I achieve profitable growth? How do I manage risk? Uh, how do I find and keep great talent in my business? Um, I, I think embracing technology is a new one. I think you know technology mm, is ever advancing. It's yeah, technology advances are kind of kind of inevitable. But I, I think as we've seen in some recent market reports, it's still a very sort of um, to to quote uh, Lancat, very it's still a very fragmented market. Mm. So I, I, I think you know sort of coping with technology capability is a sort of a a, a more recent one. But but other than that, I think it's it, it, it's the same themes. So how do I look great in front of my client? How how do I achieve profit? growth and how do I manage risk within my business so those, those seem to be the core themes that we we have most conversations around mm. now that's interesting you mentioned technology there, and I think COVID-19 really shifted things along in terms of advisor's use of technology didn't it I, I certainly did. And I think I think that was you know that was a kind of forced accelerator. What's that old phrase about sort of necessity is the mother of invention? So yeah. I, I think a lot a lot of the, a lot of those sort of you know services came to the fore, you know electronic document signing and Zoom and all. Of and I know many practices are sort of kept those things in even though they could yeah. revert to a, an old way, which is uh, which is great. Um, and, and 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 I guess going back to the sort of the, the better advice thing, I, I think there's been some terrific advancement in just in if I think about the tools that have come through in terms of uh, risk assessment tools cash flow modeling tools those all, all of those technology advancements have, have kind of helped I think you know the, the advice quality get even better for uh, for, for, for advice firms I, I think the, the interesting theme going forward is whether um, you know can will anybody crack the code when it comes to robo advice and using technology in in that way um, I'm not sure anybody's really cracked it yet. Um, even mm. when I look at other places around the world, US and so on, I mean, there, there are some there are some good firms. I, I wouldn't say anybody's really reached escape velocity yet on those. And, and it seems as though it is, you know, technology is inevitable. Um, and it will get better. It will get better every time as technology does. So I think I think there will be a day when these sorts of technologies and capabilities are there. But uh, nobody seems to have cracked the code quite yet on that, which, which is a shame because I think, you know, one one of the things we might come on to talk about is you know, we've still got this savings gap and capacity gap in the UK, and uh, I, I think technology adva advancements on the advice side are um, would would be a, a good addition to the uh, to the market that we've got today. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available, and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at IFA Magazine. 
let's talk about that sort of looking forward into the future then, Nick, and the future of advice. Uh, it's a term that we hear a lot, isn't it, these days in discussions across different professionals across the industry. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what it means to you and what you feel are perhaps some of the, the really important issues that advisors need to take on board to actually grapple with when it comes to the long-term outlook for the sector. And, and also, you know, if you want to throw in a few tips there on things you think that, that, that they should be considering so that they and their businesses will thrive, that would be quite useful too. Anyway, there's so much yeah. in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, not, uh, yeah. No, not, sure, not, sure great, not sure I have great. To, I, I guess, I guess, if I if I think about the themes that certainly come up in conversations we're having with uh, with, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I guess one that's uh, very relevant right now is sort of is the consolidation taking place in, in the market. And, oh, and again, you know, re, re, referring back to our seasoned day, I, I guess I've kind of uh, I've seen this happen a couple of times over years. I'm sure as many of your listeners will. We've we've seen sort of consolidation take place through various routes. Uh, only for a subsequent period of proliferation to happen as well. And I think so sometimes that's because the consolidator, dare I say, perhaps doesn't take care of, of, of the things it's consolidated. Mm -hmm. I, I know I know lot, lots of firms over the years where you know, the, 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 what, what I might call the mezzanine leaders within those practices were, were thinking, oh, all day this, one day this might have been mine, but oh, now it's not, it's mm -hmm. owned by somebody else. And, and, and so I, I think we've seen, you know, periods of consolidation, proliferation, consolidation, proliferation. So cl clearly, we're going through a period of consolidation again, and it, it, I guess it will be interesting to see whether uh, whether those consolidators can actually consolidate, um, you know, best practices and and really build scale and efficiency in what in what they're building to to the benefit of. of of clients and, and and I say that because um, again your your readers will be your listeners will be familiar with um, the the Royal Commission report in Australia if you haven't read the Royal Commission report from 2019 into vertical integration in Australia that that really is a recommended read because I, I think there it shows how vertical integration can go wrong um, and how customers can get bad outcomes out of the complacency that can come with vertical integration. But um, I, I'm really hoping here that as we see consolidation happening, we're, we're going to see real scale benefits emerge and, and that some of those scale benefits, if not all of them, should fall to the client, not just the organization. So I think I think sometimes the jury's out as to whether vertical integration is a good or a bad thing. Um, I, I think it could be a really positive thing if the benefits fall to clients, you know, but I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see over the next we'll see over the next couple of years or so uh, in, oh in, in, gosh i would agree there and that client focus is something i think since the rdr we've really seen developing as well as all the things you've talked about the investment proposition developments the risk profiling tools all the different assets and technology that advisors can use gives them more time to build the relationship build that trusted relationship with their client now i was just saying which is what advisors love to do at the end of the day it is a, it's a yeah question. so I think so. Yeah, I, I guess the only, I guess the only problem with that, Rebecca, is is still I, I worry that we still have going forward. We still have a capacity problem. I mean, I, I think the quality of advice has improved immeasurably over the years, but um, but we still have a capacity problem, don't we? We still have a significant savings gap in the UK. If I if I just think about my own family, my my you know my children are sort of at the start of their working lives and so on. Um, and you know and, and clearly you know obviously they, they come to me and ask me stuff occasionally about you know what they should do about money but um it's interesting when i asked them you know where else did you think of going you know they, they really didn't know where to go or sometimes they just couldn't get access to 
affordable advice. So I, I, I think that's that's you know I, I think as we talk about the future of advice, I think the, the, you know, there's no question about quality has improved. That's great. Um, I think there's still a question on capacity, um, mm-hmm. and 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 how more people can be served with with great quality advice which which is why i think we shouldn't you know we, we shouldn't be afraid of things like hybrids you know advice or robo advice things coming forward yeah. because i think you know that they're they're perhaps not there today but they will get better over time and there's many many more people need to be served with you know good advice you know getting through if they, if they can't access good, great affordable advice today true and i think also for some of the younger generation maybe who would be a bit intimidated maybe going to meet with a financial advisor if it was over technology a lot of them are very comfortable using it because they've grown up you know with mobiles and computers and stuff so actually I think that that will really really help going forward obviously all the I, yeah I, I, th- I think it's a really interesting point Rebecca I, certainly from I, I know from my time at previous shops that had these sort of operations in place it's not it's not it's, it's easy to assume it's a kind of yeah just the youngsters will get it actually it was very interesting at one of my previous shops to see uh, uh, you know that the, the, the main client cohort was kind of 65 year old doctors from Chicago with a couple of million <laughs> dollars you know who were quite happy to use a sort of hybrid robo type type service so I think it, it can span the generations I don't think it's just about age I think it's about uh, to your point how people want to engage I think in the, uh, in, in that way I, I guess one of the other the other theme we see is um, amongst advisors is kind of wanting to make sure they've got control as well so I, I think um, yeah, we, we've seen lots of outsourcing, have we, over the years? We, we one of one of the conversations we often have is is what we call the in in house outsource in source zigzag, and and what, and what I mean by that, I, I think years ago. Uh, you know, lots of firms would, would run their own investment proposition that's you know put portfolios together pick funds whatever that might be and then of course over the years we've seen an explosion in the use of sort of dfm type services uh, which have been terrific um, as things consolidate we, we speak to more firms now where um, they, they recognize they've now got significant assets under advice um, but they also realize they're not quite punching their weight when it comes to access to the sort of strategies and pricing that they might command now um, and they're starting to think about actually how, how do I sort of get control of this and make sure my clients are benefiting from the scale and expertise we can but so rather than outsource they're now starting to think how do I own this but insource the right expertise along with this so similar in a way I think to the sort of advisor as platform conversation that's going on we, we certainly have lots of conversations with large advice groups who want to bring that investment proposition back in-house and own that own the revenue stream to be to be fair but also own control of the brand exercise but make sure they've got the right scale and expertise supporting them on that to make sure they get the best outcome for their for, for, the, for their clients so I, I think, that's, again, that's an interesting trend we uh, we see at present. Yeah, it is. And, and at the end of the day, it's the client that benefits from, mm. from those changes that where the investment process can be reviewed and improved, then, then they are the ones who ultimately will benefit. And, and that's where it's all about. Well, and, and particularly so, I mean, d- d- dare I say, I mean, Reddington, um, for those that don't know Reddington, I mean, traditionally sort of served the institutional market. So, you know, lots of you know, pensions advice and we serve endowments and foundations and so on. But, um, but but increasingly, I think the larger firms are realizing that, you know, that they can also command the kind of scale and expertise that institutions have enjoyed for many years. So mm-hmm. that's typically where we operate is the, around those firms that kind of kind of want to access to, dare I say, kind of institutional strength thinking and investing. And uh, mm-hmm. that's that's uh, and, and those benefits flowing through to the client. So before we go and wrap up, then we always like to finish by asking our podcast guests this last question. And that is if you could change just one thing in the UK financial services arena, 
what would it be? I know that's a big question, but I'd be really interested to hear your answer. And only one thing, Nick, you can only change one. <laughs> Oh gosh! Oh gosh! Um, uh, let me think. Oh, there's oh, there's lots that you'd kind of want to fix, isn't there? I think things like the compensation scheme and who carries the bill for that, that sort of thing. I, I would ha I would have to say though, I would have to say if it were me, I think it would be compulsion in pension savings. Um, and and the reason I say that, I, I guess, just touching back on some of the stuff we've talking yeah, there I still worry. I have lots of friends and family who occasionally come to me and say you know, can you help me? What should I do? And I guess one of the one of the things that always saddens me when they do that, and maybe I should have done a better job over the years, but one of the things that always saddens me is they've kind of just left stuff too late. You know, they haven't got enough and, you know, and time time is pressing. And so, uh, you know, given we still have an advice capacity challenge, I think going ahead, we still have a massive savings gap in the UK. I can't help but think actually, uh, auto enrollment's great. I think that's drawing lots of people into the mm. into the savings habit that wouldn't otherwise be drawn. But uh, I, I would go one stage further. I think I would I think I would introduce compulsion and kind of get us to you know the arena like Australia, where there's some very healthy balances are being um, uh, accrued by investors, you know, through through their workplace schemes and so on. So I I think I think if I could only have one, so I would say it would be compulsion in pension savings to put lots more people in a better position in later life yeah that's a great well, one it really is and i think you'd get no uh, argument from us on that and before we let you go one more little thing on those levers uh because is there a role there and how big is that role for the advice profession to engage with next generations of their clients you know to talk to clients who who may be in in your eyes generation who would have younger uh, offspring who could benefit from some some pension direction early on is that something that is a, a, a door opener for them to actually engage with the next generation do you think? I, I'd certainly hope so Sue and, and I mean I, and I know lots of firms who spend time you know with, with you know with multi-generational families you know spending time not 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 least you know help, helping them think about multi-generational wealth transfer and so on so, some of them do it on a very altruistic kind of educational basis to try and set people up on the right path early on even if it's just you know mm -hmm. saving 50 quid a month into an ISO and you know just to create that habit when you're when you're young so I, I guess the the, the, ch the challenge with education I've been involved in a few initiatives over the year the challenge with education is you know, it's it's a long job and somebody has to pay for it. You know, it, and it's you know it, you just got to keep going, keep going, keep going. And and I and I guess for some firms, it you know it, it's a struggle making that commitment over time and you know and, and putting resources behind that. And, and there are, there are some great initiatives out there that are are doing that. So that you know the, the more that the more that can you know the the, the greater. Um, I think it's all, there's also a clue in there as to why some of the sort of hybrid robo things may be struggling. And that's because in, in that business model, low balances kill you. You know, it's, it can be, it can be quite a, um, you know, quite a tricky business to run, particularly on low balances. And, and that's the same whether you're a hybrid robo business or whether you're a, you know, a, a chartered financial planner, you know, it is, you've got to make the economics work on that. So I'd love to think you're right. So I'd love to think there's lots of effort going into helping the next generation get off and running on the, on their plan, even if they don't need the most sophisticated advice at present, at least getting them off and running on that. And, you know, hopefully that's where further education and things like, you know, the sort of hybrid digital services might, uh, I'm sure have a role to play, a role to play in the future. Mm, no, definitely. And like you say, it's just about getting started, isn't it? And that's that makes me think of you, Bex. And you, I mean, for those who are listening to us today, Bex is is a youngster. She's still in her twenties, and uh, and your experience about starting to put money aside and learning about investments was yeah. was quite telling, wasn't it? Definitely. Yeah. 
massively. I think I think I think one of the greatest pieces of investment wisdom came from uh, my old ultimate boss, Jack Bogle at Vanguard, mm. who um, I, I asked him once at a conference uh, what, what his best piece of investing advice was for youngsters, to which his answer was, take your own lunch to work and save the hundred dollars <laughs> in, into a savings account, which, and you think, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of basic thrift advice, isn't there? But uh, I think, yeah, take, take your own lunch to work and put a hundred pound a month into an ISA as early as you can. Just to create that habit. Step, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It is, and put your money to work for you, you know, in a, in a in a sensible way from an early from an early point in your career, and it's not something you're ever going to regret. So. Yeah, indeed. Right. Well, time is sort of run away with us today, Mr. Blake. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's been really good to talk to you. There's so much change going on, and a lot of really positive change as well. And, oh, uh, indeed. No, well, 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 thank you for having me on. I love, uh, yeah, lovely to see you again after these years, Sue. So thank you. Nice to have a chat with us. Another seasoned uh, season. <laughs> 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 and here's some things going on for you too at Reddington. I think we can all agree probably things are going in the right direction. I think so. I think there's lots of great stuff happening out there. So thanks for having me on. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.